Great to see you guys. Well, this morning we're going to continue with our series of messages out of the book of Acts that we've been calling Awake, and uh, in which, if you've missed it, we're talking about what Jesus is doing in the world today, and we've said that what he's doing is building the kingdom of God, which is kind of a big statement. If you don't understand that, it doesn't mean a lot to you. It's like, oh, okay, well, so that's what Jesus is doing, and what does that mean? What it means is that his plan is bigger than just the forgiveness of our sins. His plan is bigger than just the making of us clean and new. His plan is bigger than just a plan solely for us. What Jesus is doing is he is ushering in his kingdom, and his kingdom includes a brand new heaven and a brand new earth that will be inhabited, by the way, by a brand new people, not some people that he makes out in outer space somewhere, but by you and by me, by a people who by his spirit he calls into a relationship with himself, who come to understand that Jesus is the great forgiver of sin and savior of men, who put upon himself your sin on a cross and washed it away with his blood that you might have life, that you might be made a part of the family of God, or to put it differently, a part of his kingdom. And so the deal is Jesus is building his kingdom one person at a time. And he wants to do it through you. That's it. That's what we've been talking about. And for the most part, we've spent most of our time talking about how he does it. And we've said that Jesus builds his kingdom through us. How? By doing what Jesus did, or when we go out and do what Jesus did, which is what? I mean, what can we do that Jesus did? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He championed the cause of the oppressed. He gave a voice to the voiceless, right? He fought the injustices of his day. Jesus Christ didn't just come into the world that's devastated by sin and say, okay, guys, here's how to be forgiven of sin, and then left, leave us in our sin-devastated lives. He did tell us how to be forgiven. We're going to get to that in just a second. But he also addressed the effects of sin in the world. And the idea here is that you and I have the opportunity to give this world a glimpse of heaven, to give this world a preview, if you will, of the coming kingdom, of our coming Savior. When we go out into our world, each one of us has one. When we go out into this city, this community, our world is a church or the world beyond our borders, and we do what Christ did we address the real and practical needs of people. So that's part of it. But we've seen also that he builds his kingdom through us and we go out and teach what Jesus taught. And what is that? Because immediately you want to say the forgiveness of sins, and that's true, that's part of it. How to be washed clean and made new, that's true, that's part of it. How to become a member of the family of God, that's, that's also true, that's part of the message. How to know today that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. Part of the message, all of it. But it's all part of a bigger message, and the bigger message is the kingdom of God. Jesus came into the world and he said, look, guys, this is where we're going. New heaven, new earth, new people. It's the kingdom. And we become citizens of it through the forgiveness, through the inclusion in the family of God, through the cleansing, and through knowing that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. So we've been talking about how it is that Jesus builds the kingdom, and he does it when we go out and do what he did, and when we go out and teach what he taught, and he also does it in very unexpected ways. That was one of the other lessons that we learned, because when Jesus invades our life, he comes into our lives, and then he washes and makes us clean, he forgives us and makes us new, but then he starts collecting up all these things that we really don't want to talk about, we really don't want to deal with, we kind of like to tuck back in the closet and leave there, but he doesn't leave it there. He starts pulling it all out, you know, sinful things, tragic things, devastating things, things we've done to other people, things other people have done to us, things that have just kind of, at least from our perspective, happened. 
He starts pulling them out and says, I think you can use that, and I think you can use this, and I think you can, you know, he takes, for example, the abused person, he makes that person whole, and then he says, now I want you to go out and minister to abused people. He takes those of us with addictions, and that's a lot of us, and he shows us where satisfaction is found, and then having shown us, he says, now I want you to go show others. He takes people who have been utterly marginalized, maybe by a husband or a wife or a parent or all the kids on the playground or all of the above and then some, and some of us know what that's like. And he infuses us with value. And then he says, now I want you to go out and talk to the marginalized. He collects up very unexpected things, and he says, now that's what I want to use to build my kingdom. He builds his kingdom in unexpected ways. He does it through unexpected people. Which leaves us all without excuse, doesn't it? Because a lot of us want to look around and go, he can build the kingdom through that person and that person. I'm pretty sure he can do it you know, through these people over here and maybe that guy and that family. He can build his kingdom through you too. We spent a whole week on it. In fact, sometimes he does it most profoundly through the people who would just never see it coming. And it would think, well, you know, not me. But yes, you. And then lastly... Luke has been very honest with us about what it takes to build the kingdom of God. And he said, look, it's not going to be easy. It's just not. I mean, it's going to be hard. There are going to be trials along the way. There are going to be difficulties along the way. There's going to be suffering, perhaps, at times along the way. And we've seen that that's true, whether it's God who's building the kingdom in us as he strips us down, as he humbles us, as he makes us to see that he, well, and he alone is the one that we're really looking for, as he claims territory in our lives by purposefully using the difficult things in life. That's building the kingdom too, but it's also true that as he builds it through us, there are trials, there are difficulties, occasionally there is suffering. And why is that? Because it follows the pattern of Jesus to whose image we're being conformed. Jesus who lived for the building of the kingdom of God and who suffered and died for it, who then was buried and, and worked through death, <laughs> which is not you know, real inviting. But then he was raised from the dead. And that strikes my ears a little differently. I mean, that's something I think I'm pretty interested in. I don't know about you, but the mortality rate's 100%. I've noticed. Maybe you've noticed. I'm round in the corner on middle life. You know, I'm thinking, okay, eventually that's coming for me. Resurrection, I'm interested in that. Tell me more. Well, then he ascended into heaven. Okay, now I'm all in. Just take all my chips, put it in the middle of the table. I'm placing it all on him because that's glory. And he reigns and rules from the right hand of God. And one day he will come bringing the kingdom in all of its glory for all of his people. It's amazing. It's a beautiful picture. And we talked about the fact that it's not easy, but it ends in glory and that should make a difference. And the difference is, number one, it ought to motivate and compel us to build the kingdom of God nevertheless. And number two, it ought to enable us to worship even in the midst of life's difficulties. And that's really where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We left off with the idea of worship and the building of the kingdom of God, and that's where Luke picks us up again this morning as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. And Luke here is going to take us to the city of Athens, okay? But I want you to understand that he's not just going to give us a picture of the city of Athens. He's going to give us a picture of our city. In fact, he's going to give us a picture of every city. And he's going to reveal to us the hearts of the people of Athens. But in doing that, he's not just revealing their hearts. He's revealing my heart. He's revealing your heart. 
And since we're talking about building God's kingdom one person at a time, he's revealing the hearts of everyone to whom we have the privilege of bringing Jesus and offering citizenship freely in his kingdom. So Luke says this, he says, Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and the deal is this, Paul's been at Berea, and he was there with Silas and Timothy, and then he left them behind, and he's now come to the city of Athens, okay? And he's waiting for them to show up. So while he's waiting for them at Athens, it says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of what? It was full of idols. But it's not just a picture of that city. It's a picture of every city. And that throws some of us off. It's like, really? Because, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of idols as I'm driving through Fort Lauderdale. Well, look again. Look again. Okay, two or three people saw some idols. <laughs> They'll point them out for you later if you... They're everywhere. And you know what? They're beautiful. They just are. They're beautiful. They're alluring. They're tempting. And that's not just true for me, is it? And they all promise life. But do they deliver? So it says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, you know? And it's ironic, really, because the very thing that most provokes Paul in the city of Athens is also the very thing that Athens, frankly, was probably most well-known for in that day and certainly most proud of. They were known as the most pious city in the world for their observation and devotion to the gods. And there's a sense in which Luke, coming to this story, kind of figures you already know that. So he's sort of assuming, for example, that you know that as you enter into the city from the south and you go through the Piraic gates and you start heading down to the harbor, the, one of the first things that you're going to encounter is this great statue of Neptune seated on a horse, hurling his trident. You know, he's figuring you already know that. He's figuring that you know that you'd then see the temple of Ceres and the sculpted forms of Minerva and Jupiter and of Apollo, of Mercury and the Muses. He's assuming you know that you would also see the temple the sanctuary of Bacchus, the God who brings wine, popular God, brings the gift of wine. He's assuming that you know as you enter into the Agora, which is the center of the city's life, that you would find all kinds of statues of Apollo because Apollo was the patron saint of that city. He's the patron deity. And that you'd see altar after altar after altar after altar to all of these different gods. Let me just name some of them for you. There were altars in the Agora dedicated to Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, Apollo, Artemis, Hephaestus, Athena, Ares, Aphrodite, Hermes, and Hestia. It's a lot. It's everywhere. He's assuming that as you or that you know that as you look to the north toward the Areopagus, you would see the Temple of Mars, and to the east, on the Acropolis, you would see the shrines dedicated to Apollo, to Bacchus, to Aesculapius, to Venus, to Earth, ending in the beautiful Temple of Unwinged Victory. And he's assuming also that you would know that that's just kind of a getting started list. There's a lot more than that. See, the reality is in the first century, it was said that it was easier to meet a statue in Athens than a person. Seriously. It's like in the documents, historical documents. It's amazing. There were more statues in all likelihood in Athens alone than there were in all of the rest of Greece combined. Okay? Guys, these people were worshipers. It's stunning. But it's not just a picture of them. 
It isn't. It's a picture of us. See, Luke wants to talk to us about worship. He wants to talk to us about building the kingdom of God. He wants to talk to us about that topic. And so he comes to us, and right on the front end of this deal, he tells us something about worship and the heart of man, my heart, your heart, and the heart of everyone in our own little worlds and in our city and community and the world beyond our borders as well. And what he wants us to know is that worship is the activity of the human heart. Every human heart. We are all of us worshipers, all of us, always worshiping something. The only question is who or what? And so it says, now Paul, or now while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, and he saw it, and then he was kind of dispirited and threw his hands up in the air and thought, well, good grief, I guess there's no room for the true and the living God here. I mean, good, you know, it's not like they're in need of gods. Is that what he does? He figured, oh, I'm going to get a great reception. No. No, probably not. Notwithstanding the fact that he's not going to get a great reception, really. They're not really looking for any additional gods, or maybe they are. He fights for the souls of people. That's part of the example that he leaves to us and that Luke wants us to see. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols and he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, meaning with the non-Jews, with the Greeks, every day with those who happened to be there. And then Luke says some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, that is to say those guys who said that pleasure is the chief end of man, that's the greatest good that you can achieve, and then those others who said that you know the virtuous life achieved by reason is the greatest good that you can achieve. He's saying some of those folks conversed with Paul. And some says, what, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? It's not real respectful. They're ridiculing him. And the gospel at times brings ridicule. And I think that if we're all honest, that's part of the reason we don't talk much about it. We're afraid to invite that. We don't want to be viewed as a babbler. And that's what some, at least, accuse Paul of. They say, what does this babbler wish to say? And then others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was this court that had been created there in Athens that had jurisdiction over religious and moral issues. Okay? And they're not bringing him there because they're hoping to convict him of a crime and beat him and put him in prison. That was earlier in the book of Acts, different city. They're taking him there because these guys were sort of the experts and they want to know what the experts think. Let's get the opinion of the Areopagus, okay? So, all right, well, cool. They took him and brought him there saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish, therefore, to know what these things mean. And then Luke interrupts the whole story to make a comment, and it's an important comment. He says, now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. He's saying all they want to do is debate. They want to argue about ideas. But they don't want to really land on anything. They don't want to really be tried by anything. It's not entirely sincere. It's just an intellectual exercise while eternity hangs in the balance. So anyway, Luke says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which again represents humanity, really, 
said what? What's his approach? What's his appeal? What's the tutorial of Paul? He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Isn't that interesting? And then he says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, I've walked up and down the streets. You know, I've been in the Agora, I went up to the Acropolis, really cool. Couldn't help but notice it was sometimes easier to meet a statue than some of you. And by the way, as I'm looking at the altars, one to an unknown God, you people are worshipers. You should be giving worship seminars. It's unbelievable. I've never seen a people that worships quite as much as you do. You even have an altar to the unknown God, the catch-all God, the just-in-case-we-missed-you God. Think about that. But who is this a picture of? Is it just them? It's not, is it? Not if we're honest. Worship is the activity of the human heart, guys. Every human heart. And you can take Luke's word for it here, or you can just look at history. Study it. Study anthropology. Study archaeology. And what are you going to find? You're going to find that in every civilization of man, every one, there is worship. Every single one. Why? Because worship is the activity of the human heart. We all worship. All of us. All the time. I think you can look at your own life experiences, you know, go to a sporting event, pretty awesome worship. Go to a concert, I've been having a running debate, including just before I got up here with Carter Brown. Carter went to a Mute Math concert. How many of you know who Mute Math is? Just a few of you? Yeah, he does. He's been there five times. He's seen them in concert five times. 20 bucks, so it's pretty cheap. He just told me that he was gonna buy me a ticket because he believes that the Mute Math concert is the single greatest concert event on the face of the planet. And what I've been telling him is that that's not possible because I was actually at the single greatest concert event on the face of the planet. And it was in 1984, so. What? No, just envision this with me for a minute. It's 1984. It's Tallahassee, Florida. I'm a student at Florida State University, which I think we would all agree represents the upper echelon of the created order, okay? <laughs> it's all right. Just show your depravity when you disagree. And here's the thing. It's the Leon County Civic Center. It is packed full of students, and it is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band on the Born in the USA tour at Christmas. Exactly. It was phenomenal. Unbelievable. I mean, I get chills to this day. I'm telling him about it. And I'm getting chills. Bruce Springsteen in the middle of this concert. And I wasn't even a big Springsteen fan. I mean, I had a CD, but I didn't, you know, I walked away going, I know why they call him the boss. This guy was the most charismatic performer I've ever seen in my life. So in the middle of the concert, he has them turn on the house lights. All the lights come up in the whole place and he just points like this. And then he traces his finger all the way around the Leon County Civic Center, including behind the stage, which was also full of people. It was not an empty seat. And it's like we all instinctively knew what he wanted us to do, and we did the wave just all the way around the whole place. I mean, it was like unbelievably cool. It was phenomenal. Greatest worship service in some sense that I've ever seen. Very puny God, but awesome, awesome worship. All right, I want you to think about that worship service with me for a second. I'm going to say something that's not going to be real popular. 
Nobody was late. Not one person. They just weren't. You know what? We stood there for two hours. Nobody complained. They didn't. A couple of people sat down. You know what? They didn't feel weird. And nobody looked at them like, what's your problem? Okay? Some people were really celebratory. And some people are Dutch and out of touch with their feelings like me. And they were having a party in here. That's what I do, just in case you're wondering. I'm all full-on jumping around, but it's right here. Okay? And you know what? That was cool. It was fine. It was no big deal. Think about that. We're worshipers. It's what we do. The only question is who or what. And if you're still not convinced, look into your own heart. Look in there. Be honest. I mean, what does your own heart tell you? Louis Giglio is a guy that I really like as a communicator. wrote a little tiny worship book called The Air I Breathe. Think about that name for a minute. I mean, it's The Air I Breathe. How often do you breathe? It's subtitled Worship as a Way of Life, so you kind of get an idea from that, that it's about more than what we do on a Sunday morning. It's about what we do all the time. You know, we can come in here and have this great big worship service and get chills and cry and, you know, point and do the wave and walk out of here and worship with the full balance of the rest of our life, something or someone else. The air I breathe, worship as a way of life. Listen to what he says about our hearts because he's right. He says, you have been created by God and if that wasn't enough, you've also been created for him. That disqualifies everything and everyone else, doesn't it? And that's okay. He says, as a result, there's an internal homing device riveted deep within your soul that perpetually longs for your maker, an internal Godward magnet pulling your being toward him, stamped in God's image. We know that there's something we attach to, that there's something we fit with, that there's someone we belong to, and that there's somewhere called home. And we run from idol to idol to idol to idol to idol to idol to idol looking for it. You know, it's interesting to me that the people of Athens had this altar to the unknown God, the catch-all God, the in case we missed you God, God. I think that's fascinating. Why? Because it's almost like they're saying, you know, we, we try the God of relationship and we try the God of money and we try the God of this, that, and the other thing. I mean, there's nobody who had more gods than these people. It's like they're saying, we've tried everything. And, and yet there's something within us that's saying there must be something else. Something else that we attach to and fit with. Someone that we belong to. There must be a place called home because thus far everything else has left me wanting. And yet the desire is still there. So worship is the activity of the human heart. Every human heart, we all do it. The question is, what do we worship? And, and how do we know what we worship? I mean, seriously, how do you know that? I think the Bible gives us some real pointers, and one of the things it tells us is it's not necessarily based solely on what you say or what you sing. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah to a people who had like really great church attendance and professed to believe in Jesus and, and to believe in the true and the living God and to worship him alone. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
See, I think if you'll just follow the trail of, of your time, of your energies, of your thoughts, of your passions, of, of your resources, of your abilities and how you use them, of your allegiances and so forth, it will eventually lead you to your heart. And in your heart there is a throne and it will reveal who or what you worship. So anyway... Luke says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of this portion of humanity that's just like us and everyone that we're called to reach, gives us his tutorial. He reveals his approach. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. See, he knows what that says about their heart, my heart, your heart, and everyone outside the doors. And he just goes straight for the gospel. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh, men of Athens, you know, my mission is to grow the kingdom of God. My mission is to build the kingdom by presenting Christ. Free forgiveness, free life, all of that. I mean, I'm going to give you the gospel. That's my mission. That's my purpose. That's my calling. But I notice that you like to debate. So let's talk about the dinosaurs. Is that an unimportant topic? No. Are there actually reasonable and even intelligent scientific answers to that? Believe it or not, yes. But he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't say, oh, I noticed, you know, the resurrection is a little confusing. Why don't we talk about five arguments in favor of the resurrection? Is that important? I think it's unbelievably important. And there's a great case to be made. It's interesting how many scholars have set out to disprove. I mean, there's documented records of this. How many of them have set out to disprove the resurrection because on its face it looks absurd? I mean, even these people are saying very strange things you're saying to us. Well, yeah. And they've become believers in Jesus having considered all of the evidence and realizing, wow, you know, there really isn't a good explanation for this. You know what else he doesn't do? And please be careful not to get lost in this statement. Because as soon as I make it, there will be all these attachments that you'll attach to it, and, and pretty soon you'll be thinking I'm saying one thing, and maybe I'm not saying what you're thinking I'm saying. He doesn't say, my mission, my calling is to build Christ's kingdom in this world, and add mission to the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom where there will be no more death and sorrow and pain and suffering and struggle and fight and crud is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about politics. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't go there. Ever. It's interesting. Is politics unimportant? No, it's unbelievably important. Am I saying that we should just ignore it? Absolutely not. Am I saying, well, does that mean that you know, our faith ought not to influence our politics? No, our faith should influence every piece and area about us, including that. Absolutely. Should we neglect it? No. I'm not saying any of those things. What I am saying, however, is that the mission is the kingdom. And the message is the gospel. Biblical cultural transformation has never and will never come through politics. It comes on the heels of an effectively proclaimed gospel that is unhindered, unencumbered. It's through the gospel that the kingdom is built. And that's our calling. 
So anyway, standing in the middle of all these people that kind of represent all of us and everyone we know, Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, and I have rightly discerned where your heart is. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What is his methodology? It is to seize upon the emptiness of every one of our hearts, ultimately apart from a relationship with Jesus. It is to take up the reality that the gods of this world can only satisfy for a little while, and then you go on to the next one. Ever looking for that that one, that thing, that place where you fit and belong and can call home. And to use that as the opportunity to then say, I have the answer. And it's not me, and it's not rules, and it's not being a good person. It's coming to Jesus and giving him all of your sin and all of your life, all of your gifts and all of your talents, all of your resources, your entire world, if you will, and laying it down in front of him and being cleansed and forgiven and ushered into his kingdom and then commissioned to go do something eternally purposeful with the rest of your life through faith. That's it. And that is, in a sense, exactly what Paul does next. And then Luke ends the story with this. He says, some mocked, but he pressed on anyway, did he not? Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Jesus is building his kingdom. He wants to build his kingdom by the Holy Spirit through me and through you. And Luke wants to help us out. So he holds before us the heart of man. And he gives us the example of Paul who applies the answer to every one of our hearts. And the question I've got for you this morning is, who or what are you worshiping? I mean, really, not like who you sing about. We can do the wave later if you want. But seriously, when you follow the trail, get into the heart, take a good look at the throne. What's there? Who's there? And have you come to that place where you realize that if it isn't Jesus, you're just going to have to keep looking? because he offers himself freely to you. And then secondly, who in your world do you know who's running from idol to idol to idol? And you know it, you see. And God's been saying, man, you should talk to that person. Who do you need to talk to? That you too might be used of God to build his kingdom this week. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have pursued us. And as we run around through this world, trying out various gods. You have so ordained and made our hearts as to be satisfied in nothing ultimately but you. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us this day how worthy you are of our lives and how unworthy everything and everyone else is. Call us, I pray, in faith to you and to your throne. Help us to lay down our sins and lay down our lives before you and in thankfulness receive the forgiveness that is ours 
through Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life that we haven't and won't, and who died the sinner's death in our place that we might be made clean and have life. And then make us aware, God, that we're called to build your kingdom, not just ours, but yours. And bring to mind and give opportunity for us to have the privilege and the joy of sharing in the building of your kingdom by simply telling people that Jesus is the answer. We pray these things for your glory and for that kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.